Well, I have the joy of bringing the message to you tonight. And as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. This won't be a full sermon. We'll go about 20 minutes, just so you know on this. And uh, yeah, it's always a little strange to preach on Zoom. Just so you know, I'm wearing sports pants right now, sweatpants, in case you were wondering. I've never done that before for a sermon, but um, here we are on Zoom, so we can do that. And yeah, we will have the verses on the screen uh, for, for you, but if you have your Bible, it's always great to have it uh, right there in front of you. Job is the book before the Psalms in the Old Testament. And you may be thinking, why are we looking at Job on Easter? Shouldn't we be looking at the end of one of the Gospels or maybe 1 Corinthians 15 or one of the other famous resurrection passages in the New Testament? Why are we looking at Job? Well, first, we do see hints of the resurrection in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament doctrine. And so as we look at our whole Bibles, I want you to see a, a bit of the resurrection in the Old Testament, which we will see in this chapter tonight. And then second, I think the story of Job is very relevant for many of us today. And we're going to see that tonight. I think we're going to see how Job can encourage us to have great hope, especially in the resurrection. Many of you are familiar with the story of Job. Uh, I'll review it quickly. But in the very opening chapters, we see that Job is a blameless man. He's a good guy. It says he was one who feared God and turned away from evil. Good guy, blameless guy. Blameless doesn't mean like absolutely perfect and holy, but it means there can be no serious charge that can be brought against him. He's also a very rich guy. He's got great wealth. He has a great family. He's married. He has 10 children. Everything seems to be going well for Job. But then in those opening chapters, we see this interesting scene where Satan comes to God and God gives Satan permission to go and test Job. And Satan goes to Job and does all kinds of things to Job. Some of the examples of what happens, uh, Job loses all of his wealth. Quickly, immediately, he loses all of his money. It's gone. His flocks and his herds, they're all gone. All 10 of Job's children die in one swoop. One wind blows over the house that they're in, and all 10 of his children die. Can you imagine that? And then Satan strikes Job's health. He strikes his own body. And it says in the text that from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he's covered with loathsome sores, covered in sores, his whole body. So you can imagine how Job must be feeling in all of this. His body is covered in sores. He's lost all 10 of his children. He's lost all of his wealth. And his wife, the one person left for him, says, Job, curse God and die. That's her advice. So she's not exactly helpful in this case. She tells him to curse God and die. And then much of the book of Job, we see Job's three friends talking with him, trying to help him and encourage him, but actually they are fools. And we will see that. So even his friends are not helpful. So let's get into the text. Let's get into Job chapter 19. This is where we find Job in the midst of all of his suffering. And he's hearing this bad advice from his three friends. 
And we're gonna break this up into three sections. So let's go ahead and look at the first section from verses one to six. And they're on the screen for you. Job 19, one to six. Then Job answered, he answered his friends and said, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. So in this section, we are seeing Job's anger with his three foolish friends. That's what we see in verses one to five. I mean, it says in verse two, they are tormenting him. They are breaking him to pieces with their words. That's how he feels about their advice and their counsel for him. It's torment. It says 10 times they've cast reproach on him. I hope you don't have friends like this. I hope you are not a friend like this, that you're tormenting your friends. But the reason that Job feels this way is that their advice has been terrible. Job is going through all this suffering. And instead of giving him comfort and help, they're giving him this trite, naive, simplistic advice that he must be in some kind of serious sin. And that's why he is in this suffering. They keep going back to God's justice and God is just and saying, Job, you must be in rebellion against God and sin against God. And that's why you are in this suffering. Now, of course, sometimes in our lives, we do suffer because of our sin. If we commit sin, there's consequences for our sins. There's judgment for our sin. There's even eternal judgment for our sin. But we know in Job that the backstory, what's going on in the background is that the suffering in Job's life is not because of his sin. It's part of a bigger picture of what's going on with God doing something in Job's life through this suffering. And so that's why Job is so frustrated with his friends. They are not helpful. They're not encouraging him in his suffering. They're actually just making it worse. This is helpful for us to remember that not all of our suffering is connected to specific sin. And it reminds us that, you know, we're, we go through a lot of groaning in this life. We see that in Romans 8, where the, the whole creation is groaning as we wait for our Savior to come back and to make all things right. We are waiting. And so let's, uh, let's not assume that we always know why someone is suffering. Let's be careful about that. Let's not assume that we always know every detail of what God is doing in someone's life, but instead point people to God with faith and with trust. Let's go to verse six again. Verse six is a transition verse in this chapter. So Job transitions from looking at his friends to now in this section. Look at what he says in verse six. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Now he's turning his attention to God. And for the, this next section from verses 7 to 22, look at what he says about God and to God. Look at, let, let's read this, verses 7 to 22. Let's see what he says about God here. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. 
He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Wow. Is it okay to talk to God and talk about God like this? These are some big accusations. These are some big complaints that Job is bringing to God. Let's review a few of these real quick. So in verse six, he says, God has closed his net around him. Verse seven, he accuses God of not hearing him and not bringing justice. Verse eight, he says, God has set darkness upon my paths. Verse nine, God has stripped from me my glory. Verse 10, he's pulled up his hope like a tree. Verse 11, he's kindled his wrath against me, counts me as an adversary or enemy. And verse 12, Job compares God to an army surrounding him. And then he goes on and on about all of his suffering. Brothers and sisters, Job is not happy with God. He is deeply hurting and he is using strong words as he pours out his heart with what he really feels. Now, there's a great mystery here. We saw, I, I told you in the early chapters of Job that Satan is the one who afflicts Job. Satan does this, but God gives him the permission to do it. And here in this section, we do not see Job saying, Satan, get away from me. Satan, why are you doing this to me? No, Job goes around Satan and goes directly to God. He knows who is sovereign over all of this. He knows who he should be talking to about all of this. He's not worried about Satan in this story. He's going to God and making his complaints to and even about God. And I think that's the right thing to do. You know, as we sit here on Easter Sunday, I doubt any of you have the same amount of trials as Job, but it may feel like it. You may feel like from this last year that even God has turned against you. You may be just as confused about what's going on in your life as Job was back then. You may feel totally alone and feel like it's just wave after wave after wave crashing over you with trials and trials. 
And certainly as we look out to the world and we see injustice abounding, we see problems all around the world, it's easy for us to feel the same thing that Job felt and basically say, God, where are you? What are you doing? It feels like you've taken our hope and uprooted it, like pulling a tree out of the ground. Have any of you felt that way recently? And at the end of this section in 21 and 22, Job says it's the hand of God that has touched him and God is pursuing him. He is really down. This is one of the lowest, darkest moments that anyone faces in the entire Bible. This is the depths of despair. It reminds me of one other low and dark moment in the Bible. When Jesus was on that cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Job was going through, which is one of the worst trials we've ever seen for a human, is actually nothing in comparison to what Jesus went through. When Jesus experienced being forsaken by God on the cross because of our sins, Jesus understands what Job was saying because Jesus experienced these same types of things when he was on the cross, but he did it for us. Jesus was also unjustly condemned and crucified and he did it to save his people. He did it willingly out of love for us to pay for our sins. So we see Job and his trials and how he felt before God. And it leads us to how Jesus was on that cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the rest of the story on Good Friday, his, his body is taken down. They quickly wrap him up in cloths, his dead body, and they lay him in a tomb. And brothers and sisters, Easter is a time of victory and resurrection. But if we really want to appreciate the resurrection, if we really want to rejoice in Sunday, we need to understand the depth of sorrow on Friday and Saturday. And on Saturday, imagine what it was like on Saturday for the disciples. What do you think you would have felt if you're a disciple on Saturday morning? The day before on Friday, your Savior has been crucified. The guy you've been following for three years, you've seen all these miracles. And now Saturday morning, you wake up like, is he really gone? Is he really dead? What do we do now? Was this all a, a farce? Now what? They probably felt afraid, confused, and in despair. I'm sure they were groaning and wondering what to do next. Well, when we understand the depths of the struggles, then we can understand more deeply the joy of the resurrection. And we can find a deep hope in the resurrection, even while we groan in our trials and suffering today. So even if you're feeling like your hope has been uprooted like a tree, or even that God has turned against you, well, you're in good company. <laughs> Other people have felt that way. And you know what? Job 19 is not finished. We have one more section to look at. So let's look at a third section here now from verses 23 to 29. 
Verse 23, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him and the roots of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Look at this resurrection hope in Job. In verses 23 and 24, friends, he's wanting to write down forever, permanently recorded what he's about to say. He wants it engraved on a rock. This is the moment. What is Job going to do? Is he going to curse God and die like his wife suggested? Is he going to wallow in the self-pity and turn against himself in all of his trials and struggles? What is he going to write down for us to remember? Verse 25. Memorize this verse, brothers and sisters. Such a great verse. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And verse 26, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job still believes. Job is declaring that his redeemer lives. His redeemer is alive. The one who will save Job is alive. Job is declaring that he himself will in the flesh, in the flesh, see God. Even after his skin is destroyed, he's got these sores all over his skin. So even after, if, if his skin rots off and he's destroyed and dead, Job still shows this resurrection hope. Here in the Old Testament, he doesn't even know about Jesus coming or what that will all look like. But he has a resurrection hope, seeing that in my flesh, somehow physically, bodily, I will see my Redeemer because my Redeemer lives. And if Job can have that kind of hope in the midst of his trials without even fully knowing what God would do to redeem him and to redeem us, then brothers and sisters, we can have a resurrection hope. On Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, bodily and physically. All the sorrow and confusion from Friday and Saturday turned to resurrection hope on Sunday. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is the one who came and rescued us out of our slavery to sin, who died on the cross to purchase us from our sin and give us the forgiveness that we need so that we too can say, my Redeemer lives. He's alive. We're not going to graves and decorating graves of some dead saint from millennia in the past. We don't have a tomb to go to anymore. Our Redeemer lives. He's alive. We don't have a dead hope. We have a living hope. 
We have a savior who's at the right hand of the father right now, reigning over all of the universe. We have a savior who's given us his Holy Spirit so that God actually lives in us. God, the spirit is in us right now. And what's so amazing about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually groans with us. The Holy Spirit joins us in our sorrow and pain. Resurrection life now does not mean everything becomes easy. It doesn't mean life is full of victory all the time. Ask Peter, ask James, ask John, ask Paul how hard their lives were. Go read the rest of the New Testament. It wasn't easy. It wasn't all victory and perfection and and glory all the time. It was hard. But the Holy Spirit was with them. Jesus is alive and his spirit is with us now so we can live a resurrection life, a kingdom life now, even in the suffering, even in the sorrow and pain. So brothers and sisters, we're still groaning. In some ways, just like the disciples felt on Saturday, we're waiting for Jesus to return and life is still hard. We still suffer and we still feel confused. And we don't always understand what God is doing. But we also are living a life of Easter Sunday, knowing that our Redeemer lives. He's on the throne reigning. And by his spirit, he's empowered us to live out joy and hope and mission and love today, even now. So I hope tonight that the resurrection of Jesus and even the resurrection hope from Job 19 is pressed into your heart to empower you to live as hopeful people, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of what comes tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, you are a faithful God. All of your plans are working out for good for your children. Father, you did an amazing work in the life of Job, and we are thankful for that. We are thankful that Job cried out and had engraved on the rock, for I know my Redeemer lives. And Father, we thank you that our Redeemer lives, that you did not leave Jesus in the grave, but that Jesus rose from the dead and is reigning right now, and we even have your spirit in us. So, Father, fill us with hope. Fill us with a living hope to live out resurrection life even now, even this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.